hello and welcome to Movie the Musical, a podcast about movies that have been turned into musicals. I am your host, Ben Kay. We are here to investigate, interrogate, and celebrate the art of adaptation from screen to stage. We are a podcast that loves questions, and today's question is, is Audrey 2 to blame for Disney taking over the world? My answer, oh, it is. Yeah. You can, that, it's it's a straight line. It's an absolute straight line from, it's, uh, it's from Little Shop of Horrors to Disney owns more than 30% of film media. I'm to sorry Disney. that this is audio only because the look on my face is probably a lot to process. Audrey 2 is a straight line to Disney, like, editing out uh, the blood in Alien or something, <laughs> you know, because they own that sort franchise as well. I don't know. I'm so, well, because they announced they're doing that, like, that Noah Hawley is doing, like, an Alien, like, TV show on FX or something. Um, and I'm just, like, I'm so worried about that franchise. I'm so worried about, like, I know there's been, like, uh, back when movie theaters were a thing, they were just, like, going to be, like, limiting... They were, like, limiting, like, releasing prints of that for, like, uh, independent movie theaters to screen. They've been really stringent about, like, giving out the rights and giving out, like, films of, like, stuff in the 20th Century Fox catalog. Um, but, yeah, like like the giant man-eating plant, Audrey 2, <laughs> the Disney Empire has slowly taken over the world through the power of song on occasion. Oh my um, god. If it isn't obvious already, today's episode is of course about the 1960 feature film The Little Shop of Horrors and its subsequent adaptation, the 1982 off-Broadway musical Little Shop of Horrors lose the the, it's cleaner. Uh, mm-hmm. with, a, with book and lyrics by the late, great Howard Ashman and music by Alan Menken. Uh, as always, producer Brian Moorhead is here. Hi, Brian. Hello. How is everyone today? It is a beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon in Chicago. And with us today, our guests are so thrilled they're here. Uh, they are a multimedia artist, a writer, an educator. They work within the many mediums, moving image, performance. Uh, they are just like one of the most creative and intelligent people I know um, working in just the world of film and digital media. Uh, the wonderful Sid Branca is here today. Hello. I'm so delighted to be here. Uh, this topic really is uh, at the intersection of several different interests of mine. So I'm really stoked to talk to you about it. It's going to be fun. Do you, uh, so, so, so many questions. So first off, uh, Sid, not only just do we know each other through the world of the, the terrible, terrifying world of Chicago theater, uh, we both uh, share a common language uh, in that we are both in many ways from Long Island. Yeah. Each of us respectively. I moved to Long Island uh, in my in my teenage years and you you grew up there, I, if I recall. Yeah, yeah. I lived uh, on Long Island until I was 17 when I moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, a, a cute little story to maybe start with mm-hmm. is that the very first piece of theater I ever experienced in person um, was 
on Long Island, my mother took me to the Shoreham Waiting River High School Theater production of Little Shop of Horrors. Hell yeah. When I was like maybe two and a half years old. I think and, I know this story. <laughs> and so I should really call my mom up and see if I can get a recording of her <laughs> telling this story. We'll edit because, it in. We'll edit it in. <laughs> um, she's got a great accent, so like that would also help. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently me as like a two and a half year old, I was like, you know, like kind of like sitting on some things on the seat to try to be able to see. Like I was really this tiny child in the theater. <laughs> and it gets to the moment when Audrey 2 is about to eat Audrey and I like stood up on my chair and I went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sad. It's a sad thing. <laughs> it is. It is. And like me as like a tiny child was like in just like totally rapt attention and was like so invested in what was going to happen. Um, and yeah, so that that was my introduction to the theater is kind of appropriate. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's actually really fun. when I when I moved to to Long Island, one of the first shows I saw was the Broadway Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, in, wow. was it two thousand two, two thousand three, with uh, Hunter Foster and Kerry Butler uh, among the the prestigious cast of that show. Um, a, a, a few things, a few caveats to start off. Um, we've this is this is technically the season finale. <laughs> For us, of, I know, of mu- Movie the Musical. It, it, this won't mean anything to you, the listener. You're getting a new episode next week of season two. But for us, this is sort of our mid-season break. We'll be taking a break between between records. Um, and we've covered quite a lot on this season. And I'm it, especially just in sort of how people choose to adapt shows. You know, you have cases like Shrek where your adaptation is extremely faithful uh, to a fault. You have things like a little night music, where you are adapting it and then trying to dig something deeper from your source material, in that case, an Ingmar Bergman film. You know, you have things like uh, Beetlejuice, which are stuck between trying to tell a new story and also trying to be faithful to your original story. Um, And you have even something like Grey Gardens, where you are taking a, a piece of documentary filmmaking and trying to create a fictional book musical based on that. It's, we have, we have, we have spread the gamut. We've run the gamut of, of the world of adaptation. And we come to our, con- our, our conclusion of this, of this 10 run episode series, um, with a, with an adaptation, which is, I'll just say right up top. I think this is a brilliant show. I love this <laughs> show. So much. I think it is one of the most clever pieces of adaptation that exists in the world of musical theater, which might sound hyperbolic, but it's I think it's true. I think it is. I feel like it's probably not only the best show we've covered so far, but maybe the best one we'll get to cover at all. Potentially. Potentially. We've got a, <laughs> we've got a lot of interesting shows coming up in this uh, endless cycle of screen stage adaptations. But I think just in in the world of how to turn a movie into a musical, I think this is the one of the most interesting and one of the most successful. And then I also want to say... Every time that I told people that we were doing Little Shop, because, again, on Movie the Musical, this is our 10th episode, but I gotta hammer it in, like our current perception of the concept of time, we only (laughs) move in one direction. We are only covering 
if it was first a movie and then it was a musical. Because every single time I brought up we were doing Little Shop, they were like, oh, the Steve Martin movie. And I'm like, no! <laughs> we, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on that briefly, and we are going to have a Patreon episode, so if you want to hear our full thoughts on that movie, you have to be a Patreon subscriber. But no, we are talking about the state show, which is based on this, I'm just going to say it, pretty bad Roger Corman uh, uh, B-movie. I mean, it's a B-movie, I'd say it's an F-movie. <laughs> Hey-oh! I mean, I, I will get into what I think the sort of charm of these, like, just cranked out what Roger Corman movies mm-hmm. is for me. Um, I, like, really enjoy it, but it's, like, not about being a good movie. Sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like, the musical is about being a good musical, I think. Yes. Um, yeah, and and I'm excited that you sort of have this vast, uh, Roger Corman knowledge within you, Sid Branca, because I'll, I'm, I'm something of a, of a Roger Corman neophyte, Neophyte, the only other film of his that I've seen is, uh, The Mask of the Red Death, Mm. um, which is, which I think is a great movie, and it's not just a great B-movie, but I think that is a great movie, uh, in its own right, yeah, his um his sort of Poe cycle of films I think is um like much more like cinema, right? Than the things <laughs> sure. he was making before that. Like his priorities are a little different once he gets to making those movies. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Little Shop is from an era just before that, um, where he's kind of like just churning out as much as possible in like a really condensed period of time. Yeah. Um and yeah, some of them are better than others, but <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, so yeah, so let's so uh, that's all just to say you're not gonna get your hot takes on the little shop of horrors musical movie from 1987. You gotta be a Patreon subscriber for those. But we will just say that movie really fucking good. Um, it's so good. <laughs> it, it's so good, and like really also definitely worth getting like. The Blu-ray or looking up on YouTube. Yes, the, the, the director's version. cut, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, great, great film. <laughs> great film of a great musical. But no, but we're going to start off this episode talking about The Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Roger Corman in 1960. Now, Sid, I want you to, because again, you probably know more, because I feel like this is a disputed fact about sort of how this movie was made and why this movie was made. Because sort of like the colloquial like rumor is that this was essentially a dare, that this was made on the set of another film in like what... Two days and a night, like a, a, <laughs> a, 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 a what should be, frankly, an illegal amount of time to make a feature film. In. Um. Yeah, yeah, and so it that um, the sort of the fact that this was a film that was made on the kind of leftover sets of another film that seems to be universally known to be true. But mm-hmm. like, what other film? And exactly how Roger Corman got access to these sets and how long he was using them for is like a little bit more. I've gotten conflicting information from different sources. But yeah. according to Roger Corman himself, um, there was some other film that he was not involved in that he didn't work on that had all these um, sets, this kind of like town with the different shops kind of set um, that was set to be torn down mm-hmm. um, in a few days. And um, 
And so Roger Corman was like, oh, oh, I'll rent it for like a couple of days. Like, I'll just like for super cheap, you're about to tear it down. Let me just like slide in there and make a movie for basically no money. Um, <laughs> and according to him, he, in fact, made a bet um, that yes. he could make that movie. Um, let me find the actual quote in this book. You can just edit out the part where I'm looking for it. Um, because uh, one of the things that I read for this um was Roger Corman's book, which is called How I Made a Hundred Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. <laughs> um which is Roger Corman with Jim Jerome, which I'm sure is some LA writer's like pen name that they use for ghostwriting celebrity sure. novels. Um but it is uh it's a really fun read. I kind of assume half of it is lies. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, you know, it's I I there is something wonderful I think about self-proclaimed like B-movie directors. You know, like especially like in the sort of like the same school as someone like Edward Ed Wood, you know, it's like someone who mm-hmm. and I mean especially like as portrayed in the Tim Burton film, you know, like someone who just loves movies so much even and like they like obviously they are not setting out to some I mean, in in some cases they're not setting out to make a bad movie they're just like they are just like so sure of themselves and they are so passionate that there's just like a, this like genuine earnest scrappiness to the kind of work mm-hmm. that they want to make um right like you said like i'm curious to sort of we'll dig into sort of what you find charming about this movie but right it's just like they're not they don't care how bad it looks. They're just like excited about getting together with people they like telling a story that they think is fun. Like a more prolific Tommy Wiseau, but minus the like Ukrainian drug money or wherever he got the money. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a, like ideally a little less abusive, like a, sure, and a little so more ideally, but right. you know. <laughs> yeah. The experience of being in a Roger Corman set seems um really intense because like actors are constantly being asked to like do crew roles and then sure. crew members are constantly last minute getting cast in the film um well yeah charles the writer <laughs> of the film charles b griffith i believe he plays the robber he plays yeah. like the 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 guy who tries to rob uh mushniks later in the film mm-hmm. yeah that yeah. sounds like chicago storefront theater oh not mm-hmm. wrong <laughs> like i said shouldn't be legal uh. <laughs> yeah he says um um uh after bucket of blood which i want to talk about in a in a minute um right. um or a bucket of blood um i wanted to do another film in a similar tone this time distributed by my own film group company when the manager of producer studio where i had an office mentioned that a film with a fairly big office set was wrapping and had nothing coming in i had an idea Leave the set standing, I told him. I'll rent it for two days and I'll shoot a picture there. My set construction budget will be zero. I also want it for three rehearsal days. Um, and so, and then he calls up Chuck Griffith and is like, give me a script. It has to be written for this set that already exists and we have to be able to shoot in two days. <laughs> <laughs> and so then Chuck Griffith and Roger Corman go bar hopping. They just like, right. are just like on the Sunset Strip in LA, I believe. Um, and they just like go bar hopping and like just are just like bouncing ideas back and forth. And they finally like are they're like in a restaurant and they're like looking at people eating and they're like, what is it? Something about gr- gluttony. And like, <laughs> this is, like eventually they're like, oh, what if, what if we made a movie about cannibalism? Like, uh, uh and then they eventually land sure. on uh, a um, a man eating plant. 
Um, of course. Yeah. Ab- right. ab- absolutely. Um, and I think like <laughs> part of it too, is that, so a bucket of blood, um, was the movie that he basically just had just recently finished making. Yeah. Talk, 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 talk to us about a bucket of blood. First off, great title for a movie. <laughs> it's uh, super great. I, so I went to watch it for this podcast thinking I had never seen it before. Um, and then as soon as I started it, I realized I'd absolutely had seen this movie before, Great. but the title is so vague that it has like nothing really yeah. to do with what happens in the film that I like didn't remember that that was what the film was called. Is it, is it of higher or lesser quality than Little Shop? Um, I think maybe higher quality. I think that there's like a little bit more production quality and um, I think it it is actually interested in making a certain kind of social commentary in a mm-hmm. more overt way. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bucket of blood is set in like a hipster cafe, like hipster in like the fifties sense. Okay. So like the opening sequence of a bucket of blood is like some guy, like delivering a spoken word piece about like the nature of art. Um, while everyone else in the cafe is like, loving this shit they're like oh yes like the world is all just material for the artist like oh snap 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 um (laughs) and i think we're meant to feel somewhat derisively about it um and so the film is about the like waiter in this place who is like you know the sort of like meek and bumbling man who doesn't really have friends and is like mocked by the patrons of this cafe and um you know like wants to be taken seriously as a person or like as an artist because it seems like the people who are around him who are respected are are artists and basically through like a weird misadventure kind of like series of unlikely accidents he kills his landlady's cat and decides to cover it up by covering the dead cat in clay and presenting it as a work of sculpture with like of of this cat this clay cat with a knife sticking out of it that's a perfect crime and so everyone at the cafe is like holy shit you're a genius (laughs) like this is incredible (laughs) art like wow like this is amazing um and and then basically he's like i guess i gotta do it again and so of course he starts killing people and encasing them in clay and presenting them as sculptures as he's kind of like rising to fame in this like artist community. Um, and, um, until obviously like someone starts to suspect and then, um, like it doesn't end well. Um, I I, I would not imagine it ends well. I I have to, (laughs) I, I have to cut us off because I'm digging into this. Um, there is a musical production uh-huh. of A Bucket of Blood. Whoa, that, cool. Well, not... Mm-hmm, produced by the Annoyance Theater in no! Chicago, <laughs> Illinois in 2009. Uh, There's the other shoe. There we go. Dropping like a stone. Huh. Uh, I'm sort uh, of surprised I didn't see that because uh, I was here then. Yeah, who knows? Uh <laughs> It was recommended by the Chicago Reader. Um, huh. it, I wonder who worked on that. Probably people I know. I um, like. it's if it has Probably. it has a whole list of like uh, cast and like credits on the Wikipedia entry, so you could find wow. out. Um, there is apparently also another musical adaptation in uh, development uh, called Beatsville. 
<laughs> is that like where they live in the movie? No, but I could see that being a title, like a bad title for the film. I could see it being called that. <laughs> um, with a book by uh, Glenn Slater, who is currently Alan Menken, full circle, they're Alan Menken's current like lyricist partner. Uh, oh, Glenn interesting. Slater. Yeah. Um, huh. Very strange. Very, very strange. Um, but it yeah. stars good old Dick Miller from Gremlins and also in... A little the the little shop of horrors that we're talking so, about. So yeah, today. so let's the little shop of horrors. Uh, let's talk plots. Let's talk about what happens. Uh, this film opens, uh, as all great films do, uh, with a shoddily uh, drawn uh, image of its location, <laughs> uh, Skid Row. I love it. <laughs> no, I lo- okay. it, it, it is. It, again, it has its own charm. And I will say, so I tr- this movie. It's hard to find a good print of it. It seems like mm-hmm. all the prints that I found, like on wherever it was streaming, uh, it, it's a it, they pulled it from a really bad, like damaged print of the of the movie. Yeah, um, that's the thing that often happens with films that are in the public domain. Yeah, so it, is because... this in the public domain? So yes. from what I understand, Corman didn't bother to like pay the money to Great. maintain the rights or whatever. Of um, so it's a film that's in the public domain, which means like a bunch of DVD companies that like make their living, just like making selling $2 DVDs of yeah. movies in the public domain. Like oh. we'll just m- use whatever shitty version and just like sell that. Yeah. So films in the public domain are both easier to find and harder to find in high quality version. Yeah. It's like the kind of weird thing there. So, yeah, often when you come across this film, it yeah. looks like shit. I'd, lo- I'd love to see, like, I don't know, like, Arrow, Arrow Academy or, like, one of those, like, boutique, like, horror, like, distributors, like, make... I mean, because I know there's a colorized version of it, which I have no interest in. I'm like, this thing yeah. was made in black and white, keep it in black and white. But I'd love to see, like, or, or even just, like, a, like, this and the 1987 Lil Shop, like, on a... on Criterion. a together. Yeah. Hey, Criterion. Get on this. What do you think? that double steel book. What do you think? Yeah. Please, 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 please. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so the plot, and like this has happened on previous episodes where I like to just give the plot of the movie and then we just go through the song list for the musical because mm. in most cases, the plot is usually one to one. That is kind of the case here, but also not at all. Uh, especially yeah, in the- <laughs> less so than standard, probably. Yes, in the second half of the thing, especially. So... The plot of The Little Shop of Horrors, um, Mushniks, which is spelled differently uh, in the musical for whatever reason. Uh, here it's like Mushniks. They remove the C in the musical. I don't know why. Um, the flower shop business is uh, is uh, is crap. Uh, but Seymour, who is this, this little this little nerd with a newsies cap, uh, <laughs> is like, well, I got a plant uh, that is going to be all the rage. Uh, he brings out this uh, plant. Audrey Jr. is the name of the plants in this version. Um, mm. It's some weird little Venus flytrap. They don't really know what it is. Um, oh, yeah, and we we know about uh, the dentist um, who... What's, is, what's, what's, what's the character's name? He's a very... Uh, Orin, I think. In, right? in the musical, it's Orin. I think it's uh, Burson Fouch. Is, is that him? I forget. Um, what a name. Yes. No. No, that's the guy who eats the flowers. Gotcha. Oh, oh, yeah. oh Dr. Dr. Farb is the, is the <laughs> dentist. Yeah. Um, yes, Dr. Phoebus Farb. 
my god. Very, <laughs> very silly names. And I get, yeah, I mean, uh, we'll get to Jack Nicholson, but his character's name is Wilbur Force. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I yeah. mean, even like Seymour, Seymour Krellborn, um, Gravis Mushnick. I mean, there's, they're very silly names inherently. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Seymour's, uh, well, his name is Krellboind. It's it's fucking weird. Um, Again, like, it's just like, you can tell, like, there is a beautiful, like, thrown together in a day energy to this thing, which, yeah, I guess there is a charm to it, even if, for me, it didn't really land super well. Um, His his whining mother is a character, Seymour. Um, Yeah. Yeah. His his mother. yeah, Yeah. His mother, who's kind of like a, like a hypochondriac who's like addicted to tonics mm-hmm. um so that is i believe um the mother of the screenwriter also awesome playing the mother of the main character i i that's ridiculous ridiculous it's a very silly film but yeah um but then uh seymour finds out that audrey jr opens they, they open up their little their little clammy thing. And, I mean, it looks like two coconuts. It looks like Roger Corman found a coconut and cut it in half and threw some, like, I don't know, like, sawdust or some shit and some hay in there to make it look feathery. And mm-hmm. someone's just, like, puppeteering it. It's got a weird voice as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's Chuck Griffith. It's the screenwriter is the voice of Audrey Jr. Oh, awesome. Um, which I'm delighted by. Uh, they're just like, feed me! Um, which obviously, <laughs> they change for the show. But um, <laughs> but yeah, we find out that Audrey Jr. likes uh, blood. Um, and so how are we going to feed? But it's so funny because Seymour doesn't, for the most part, doesn't, like, kill people. Like, it's sort of like happenstance. Like, he's, like, wandering around, uh, like, the train yard at night, wondering what to do, and essentially, like, lures some guy into the train tracks who then gets hit by a train, and he's like, well, I might as well feed this dead body to my plot. Yeah, he, like, accidentally kills a guy and yes. is trying to figure out what to do with the body <laughs> and, and then like, tries to, to get together. rid of it in other ways. He, like, yes. tries to hide the body in other ways and then is like, I guess I'll just bring it back to the flower shop. And yes. then it dawns on him that he can feed it to this carnivorous plant. Exactly. Um, yeah. he, there's this uh, maybe my favorite moment in the film where he's just, like, feeding the entire arm into this little <laughs> coconut Audrey while singing Tis the Season. <laughs> Yes. Uh, <laughs> this absolutely demented energy happening. Um, and Mushnik sees... I feel like Mushnik is more of a central character in this film mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. than we would... than than what would happen in, in later adaptations. Um, very strange. Uh, but then he goes to... He goes to kill... The dentist uh, does not have any relationship with Audrey. Audrey is just like a... I feel so bad for that character. She's nothing. She's absolutely yeah. just like uh, she's just like a punchline, yep. basically, because she, yeah. she like a... uses big words wrong. Yes, she is just like uh, <laughs> supposed to be like the woman. She is supposed to be yeah. the uh, she. No, she is. She is the attractive <laughs> woman in the film um, who falls in love with Seymour just like that, like nothing. Uh, yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. It's it's a movie. Characters fall mm-hmm. in love. I guess these two <laughs> will as well. Um, but he goes to the dentist. Uh, the dentist takes one of Seymour's teeth out, like he does. He extracts it. 
Um, but then they get in like a drill fight and <laughs> then the mm-hmm. dentist dies. Um, then, of course, we have uh, Jack Nicholson out in the lobby reading a magazine entitled Pain. Um, <laughs> Which I would love to read a copy I, I'm of. I'm like, what is, is that like a dent? Is it a dentist exclusive magazine? Is it like a sadist In, exclusive magazine? Like, I what's need happening? a subscription. Like, I gotta know. <laughs> if the publishers of Pain Magazine are listening, please hook us up with a sponsorship. That would be great. Um, <laughs> we would love to write the next op-ed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> what would you write for Pain Magazine, Sid? Ooh, ooh. I mean, like, so this is an audio-only piece of content. So people yeah. can't see that I'm wearing um, bootleg Hellraiser merch right now. <laughs> but I think I would probably have to um, write a, an ode to the Hellraiser franchise. I feel like and that is definitely a pain-centric franchise. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so Jack Nicholson is a sadistic uh, uh, patient. Or masochistic, I Well, yeah, say. I guess, yeah, masochistic, I suppose. Uh, hmm. they, t- they take pleasure uh, in going to the dentist, uh, <laughs> feeling pain. Um, I, and Jack, I mean, they are, he is so recognizably Jack Nicholson. Like, he's not high. It's not like... So young. Yeah, it's, he's, he's a baby. He's, this must have been one of his earliest roles. Um, mm-hmm. he, he is kind of a cutie pie, but it's just like, as soon as he like opens his mouth, you're like, oh yeah, that's fucking Jack Nicholson. <laughs> like, it's not like you watch a movie, it's like, oh, is that so-and-so? It's like, no, 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 no. No, it's Jack Nicholson. This is Jack Nicholson. I mean, and that's... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Sid. Oh, and that, and it's interesting because like a lot of jack nicholson's earliest roles were in roger corman movies um roger corman tends to be like yeah hollywood thought that they like discovered jack nicholson after i had put him in seven movies well that's i mean that's (laughs) i was actually gonna say so that's kind of the thing that i love about roger corman as well is not only like people might be like oh why the fuck do you care about this like guy who made uh purportedly bad uh like horror films and it's like he actually like fostered a lot of like young actors and like and directors especially i mean like fucking uh oh my god uh nicholas uh the the director of the witches uh nicholas Uh, rogue Rogue. yeah nicholas rogue was the cinematographer of the mask of the red death like francis like i mean i'm looking at the wikipedia page like (laughs) directors that like he mentored include like francis ford coppola ron howard martin scorsese jonathan demi james cameron like he like cool yeah like jonathan demi started out as like a trailer editor for roger corman and francis ford coppola was like uh i think his ad and that was corman's ad for a while and then like basically like pitched his first feature to Corman and well, yeah, so Corman I mean, produced his first movie. Well, yeah. Like, yeah. Like Kate, like some of Demi's first movies. Yeah. Like caged heat and crazy mama. I believe like Roger Corman, like was like, like had a hand, like getting those off the ground. Like he's like, that's, I, even if someone like makes bad art or whatever the <laughs> fuck bad art even is like, if like I respect you. Exactly. No, like I respect. Jack off motion. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for uh, explaining that. Uh, I respect so much an artist who their legacy is in the relationships that they create and in the communities that they foster. For me, that is so much more engaging uh, than just like someone who makes good things i mean that's i mean that's mm-hmm. why i will always go to bat for martin scorsese because he is someone who's not just mm-hmm. making good movies he is someone who is like 
actively funding and supporting and preserving filmmakers around the world. Um, Absolutely. Marty Scorsese is a national and international treasure. Yes. And actually, there's a pull quote on the front of this, or on like the inside of this book, um, of Roger Corman's book. And it's, Roger Corman is not only a great mentor, mentor, he's an artist, the best kind of artist, able to nurture and inspire talent in a generous way. Martin Scorsese. <laughs> but Ben and Sid, his characters are bad. That means he's bad. That means you're supposed to think that they are good, and so he's bad. It's funny. It's like not a day of my life goes by where, like, I don't interact with somebody's bad take about Scorsese movies being like that, that conflate the idea that like the representation of something is an endorsement of something oh or like that God. any that like you might ever show something in a critical light. <laughs> like what? Listen, what? Scorsese thinks Jordan Belfort is a good person. <laughs> yeah. Oh, active. It's clear Listen, from his film. Here's the thing. Movies can only be good or bad. That's it. There's nothing in between, and that's or that's our official stuff. Every bit of culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they should all have, like, a really clear moral message. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The moral message of The Little Shop of Horrors is uh, uh, plants are bad. Don't, Don't feed, feed the plants. Don't feed the plants. Don't feed the plants. Yeah. So, yeah, just to quickly uh, <laughs> finish summarizing uh, the original <laughs> The Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Um, I do, yeah. So then uh, a burglar breaks into Mushnik's, uh, and Mushnik leads. Uh, the plant is huge. Like, like now it is like a giant coconut, um, or like a, I don't know what the hell it is that they probably made paper mache. Roger yeah. Corman oh, loved yes. paper mache. Probably, yeah. Um, he leads him into the burglar into the plant, and he eats him. My favorite moment in the film. Uh, he eat, <laughs> he eats the plant. He eats the burglar, and then Mushnik's just like. Oi, what I did. <laughs> Just like so fucking like casual. <laughs> it's like he stubbed his toe. Uh, and, and I will say that's the thing I love about both little shops. There's just like a beautiful Jewish energy to them that I mm-hmm. obviously, I personally uh, re- resonates with me. Um, great. Yeah, I've like seen a couple of people online being like, is Little Shop anti Semitic? And then I'm like, Little Shop is made by Jews. So yeah. probably not. Yeah. <laughs> like, <Classic>. like <laughs> probably it's fine. <laughs> um, but either way, um, yeah, the, the mother character is insane. I'm kind of glad that they cut her from future adaptations. Um, I or- like when she reads the ingredients and then she's like, 40% alcohol. <laughs> I <Yeah>. just downs <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, she, uh, or, no, then Audrey Jr. hypnotizes uh Seymour to go find people to kill. Um mm-hmm. he throws a rock in the air and murders a sex worker. <laughs> not great. Oh, Bad and politics. It, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> and it's also like confusing. Yes. Yes. It's very <laughs> that strange. Part of the film, that part of the film is the most confusing part of the film. Oh, but then to me. something that does happen, which they do uh, sort of carry over to the stage show, which I love, is that the flowers are starting to bloom on Audrey Jr. and they contain the faces of its victims, which mm-hmm. you couldn't tell unless the other characters uh, pointed it out. I'm just like, that doesn't really look like that actor, but they're telling really me it a, looks like Not that. an accurate rendering made by the plant, no. <laughs> no. Oh, it's a very, it's a very bad render. Um, oh, also, like, the movie is kind of framed by a detective. Like, there's this, like, voiceover. So strange. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's, like, a, 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 a technique that Corman, in general, likes to use is to, like, in order to try to make scenes cohere 
in something that was like sort of shot in a scattered way and be mm-hmm. like, all right, we're going to slap a voiceover on it to frame everything in a narrative sure. because mm. maybe we couldn't shoot this one part. So like a fucking Greek messenger, this voiceover <laughs> is going to tell us what happened off screen yeah. um, so that the plot kind of can continue. Um, and we'll just like use whatever, like well, that. that's how we'll kind of smooth over the rough edges of what we might be missing in the shot. Yeah. <laughs> To varying levels of effect, but I get why it's a it's a tactic that could work. Yeah. Listen, you you find whatever you can to sort of try and throw something together. Um, I get it. Um, but yeah, then they they realize that Seymour is the one who's been uh murdering people. There's a, a they chase him through a tire yard. He hides in a toilet in the junkyard. Um, he eventually goes back and he tries to kill Audrey Junior. To no avail. Uh, the rest of the cast shows up and they see his face in the flower and the film ends like all great films do with him squeaking out. I didn't mean it. <laughs> the end. <laughs> That's literally the final line of the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, a thing to note about the like exterior shots. So like all of sure. the like all of the stuff that's like in the shop is like um in this this set from this other film um that was gonna get torn down it, it um, wasn't a bucket of blood i for some reason i thought it that was. is what i had read in some places but roger corman doesn't say that in his book and i like i don't know if it's that he is trying to like cover up the fact that he's like using the same things for multiple music movies or if it actually was just like a thing that got muddled in the in the game of telephone of apocryphal Corman stories. For sure. And I will say, like, as of this recording, Roger Corman still alive with us. Yeah. Yeah. Which is remarkable. Good on him, my dude. Uh, but yeah. anyway, you were you were saying about the exterior um, shots. So a lot of that stuff um, that like wasn't done on the set um, was actually then roger corman like sent chuck griffith out to like get this footage to be like get some footage of skid row and like get some footage of some other people which is why it's so it's his grandmother who's playing the mother um and then it's um like and chuck griffith's dad is also in the movie and um and then like some of the scenes um where there's like just sort of like people out and about in skid row Mm -hmm. is like literally um chuck griffith going to skid row and like looking around and like finding some guys and being like do you like just like un- unhoused yeah. people on the streets of skid row and being like hey you want to be in a movie <laughs> <laughs> and like because they had already started when he was like saw they saw him with like his camera they were already like kind of like play fighting mm-hmm. and stuff and like putting out a show um and yeah so like literally like paying with change for these like these performances to happen in these scenes yeah um i love that and also like just that that the screenwriter just got like sent out to like (laughs) with a bread van and no permit and like a camera (laughs) again like like, the more again the more (laughs) we talk about this movie the more it sounds like the horrors of Chicago storefront theater. <laughs> it's just... like, I think technically a union was involved in the stuff that was on the set. And that's part of why the stuff that wasn't on the set, Roger Corman was like, Hey yeah. Chuck. Yeah. Take the van. <laughs> um, Don't worry about where we got this B-roll. Just get yeah. it. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, before we, before we move to musical talk, uh, Sid, is there anything sort of, 
uh, about to end off to to say about Roger Corman, or if there's like, is there like a good sort of like mm-hmm. entry point for folks to sort of enter his weird world of movie making? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I actually think a, a bucket of blood is a is a fun place to start. Um, especially if you're like thinking about it in relation to Little Shop, because it's like thematically kind of similar mm-hmm. in that it's like about a kind of meek man who doesn't have a lot of social capital or capital capital, right? And who is given a an like of a backhanded opportunity or something through mm-hmm. there's some kind of misfortune that he can then take advantage of um to then finally feel the promise of some kind of upward mobility or a uh, social place in the world and like respect from other people but it's it's at a cost mm-hmm. and so he continues to do that thing even though it's it has an increasing violence and then it ultimately ends badly for him um and so that that formula of the kind of oh the the meek might inherit the earth but at what cost um is the thing that is is in more than one of his films yeah Uh, and i think it's like a and it's also um this kind of era of corman films at the like end of the 1950s is when he starts to land on like the combination of horror and comedy mm-hmm. as um as like a successful blend and that um being making films in that style and also doing like double features in the same genre um were, were things that becoming um like increasingly popular and so that that was like the market mm-hmm. um that was being gone for and that that like combination of tones it's like oh this is a horror movie but this is really like a farce <laughs> um <laughs> and that that is like um what he's aiming for and yeah um and just in general just like the fact that he was always kind of in pre-production for one movie production for another movie and post-production for something else and was like on producing something something else on the side like there were years where he made like seven films i mean i'm, I'm in, looking in at his, i'm looking at his like wikipedia i mean it, i think he's credited with like over 50 films That's to cool. his to his name um yeah i mean i again my my entry point was the mask of the red death so i mean i would if if you're looking for one uh if you're looking for a movie that i think sits in both sort of a campy zone and sort of a more quote-unquote serious zone i i think that's a great one um yeah i don't know yeah. Because the post cycle was basically after he had made these, a few of these kind of horror comedies, he was like, I want to make real films <laughs> with mm-hmm. like a budget that's over $35,000 <laughs> and a real actor. I mean, yeah, I mean, Vincent, Vincent Price. Price is just fucking, ah. Uh. Incredible. Radigan, Radigan himself, just the fucking <laughs> brilliant. Um, this is really a tangent, but I think you personally will enjoy this. So I'll just tell you about it. Probably. Um, and we can cut it out uh, if we need to. But Vincent Price released um, an like an album, like a vinyl record of recipes. It's like what? Vincent Price takes you, like describes to you how to 
host a themed dinner party on different types of cuisine. Great. Like there's one where it's like a Moroccan journey. Um, and there are recordings of Two them. You can find it. Two cups of sugar and a pound of flour. Like I can just imagine. It's so good. Like and the, I was trying, you know what? I jumped into an impression and I immediately backed out because I knew it was a yeah, good Yeah, I didn't ability. land it either, but it doesn't matter. You understand. Yeah, yeah it's really incredible. Like, I, yeah, I was listening to this in like rapt attention because it's also like paying attention to the subtleties of like how to time when to bring things to your guests and when to encourage them to recline on the cushions you have placed 350 on. degrees. <laughs> then uh, sometimes wait I remember in the living that he's from room. Missouri. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. that, that man's voice came from Missouri, huh? Anyway. Uh, it's a Branson uh, voice right there, baby. Uh, so. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do we get from Roger Corman, uh, cheapo, cheapo film made on the fly, to one oh. of maybe one of the most influential musicals in in the twentieth century? I would argue um, since like Oklahoma. Pre- honestly, Truly. like if you think about the impact, just like okay, Howard Ashman. I, I watched, uh, there's a documentary on, on Disney Plus called Howard, about Howard Ashman. Um, it is a, it's a nice documentary. I, w- I wouldn't say it is, like, the most, like, thrilling just, like, in its structure, but it's, like, if you want a primer on who Howard Ashman was um, as, a, as an artist, it's a, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good watch. Um, it's pretty comprehensive, I would say. Um, he... I, I mean, I, he, he passed away from AIDS uh, when he was 40 uh, in, like, in the early 90s. And I would say, like, I mean, it's, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I feel like, we, we obviously, we're still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I feel that we have not reckoned with, I would say for the most part, there hasn't really been a reckoning of those that we've lost in, mm-hmm. like, a way that I think we're even, like, still now, like, reckoning with those that we lost, uh, lost due to AIDS in the, in the 80s and 90s, um, and I feel like Howard Ashman was just, like, such, I feel like the world of entertainment would be so markedly different if he had not passed away, so that's, yeah, so, so, I yeah. absolutely agree, I absolutely agree, and, and to what you were just saying, like, I have found myself during this pandemic, like, um, being drawn to a lot of work uh, that is around was made kind of around the AIDS crisis. Like I'm watching a lot of Derek Jarman films and reading a lot of like Dave Bonarowitz and like thinking about what does it mean to be making work in the context of like epidemic mass death. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It definitely feels like a, a thing that's relevant to what we're navigating as artists now and like what, what will things look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for, like, the normal heart of our generation, you know? Like, that sort of, mm. like, angry polemic of, a, of a thing. <laughs> yes, sure, there you go. Jesus Christ, there you go. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it, but Low I love it. Fruit. Low hanging fruit. I know. Um, but, yeah, no, like, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that sort of... Because, like, just the normal heart and just, like, Larry Kramer's work as... I, like he, for me, like I know he was uh, a a rough individual, um, just as a human being. But like he, he did the work. He both mm-hmm. he both like wrote work that was addressing his activism, and he was like 
an activist. He was, he like was doing, he was organizing. He was coalition building. He was in his own sort of angry way. Like he was putting his words to action in a, in a really powerful way. Um, but yeah, uh, sort of relates to that. Like Howard Ashman, yeah, got, gone too soon. Would love to, I again, would love to see the world that he would, be in uh today where we wouldn't mm-hmm. be remaking all of his movies uh as live action <laughs> efforts um right. that would be oh great God. i bet because yeah. he would shoot that shit down immediately um <laughs> but yeah he he co-founded this theater this tiny uh theater the wpa theater in new york off off broadway um and they would like do like experimental weird shit um he met uh he like he he had he was like writing uh, like shows at college, um, he he got together with uh, Alan Menken, who at the time was mainly a composer and a lyricist. But Howard Ashman was like, "How about I be your lyricist? Like, let's try this thing out." Uh, they wrote a show uh, based off of a Kurt Vonnegut novel, uh, "God Bless You, Mister Rosewater," um, which is a, a fun uh, sort of poke at capitalism and the idea of uh, philanthropy. Uh, and mm. sort of what what happens when like a, f- a philanthropist like sort of realizes that they are not actually doing uh, a lot of great work that like it's you know sort of like really breaking down the concept of charity um, in a very Kurt Vonnegut way. Um, but they adapted that into a musical, which had a very successful run at the WPA Theater. Um, there's a, a cast album from a concert they did a few years ago, and it's a really lovely score. I mean, how it, I mean, mm. first of all, just Alan Menken. I mean, and like, Alan Menken is just like the composer. Like, he is just like I feel like he is, uh, like even as a multiple award-winning like dis like herald of the Disney Renaissance, I almost feel like he is an underrated composer. Because mm, like people don't know his name, right? Well, like even like they don't know his name, but I feel like just like because that style of songwriting has just like bloomed into sort of what we know today as like musical theater and like film songwriting. But he's just like. His, his, I mean, and especially just with Ashman's, like, extremely clever, extremely human lyrics, I feel like there's just, like, the, I mean, like, we watch, we've been watching the Disney Renaissance films, because there's nothing else to do right now in the midst of a (laughs) pandemic, Um, and it's, like, watching Little Mermaid, and literally just that, like, part of your world reprise, that just, like, I don't know when, I don't know how, just, like, that, just musical lift, and just, like, Uh, it's gorgeous, it's just, I don't know what it is about that, like, sequence of notes, and just, like, how those songs are structured, it just, it hits something in you, it really, really does. Even that, like, arpeggio that starts it. Oh, yeah, that something, in your bones, you know, and it's, like, and it's, and I wonder if that's just, like, is, like, a musical technique that's something somewhere just deep in like human like <laughs> genetics because like it reminds me of uh, this is uh, a little nerdier but it reminds me of like the final fantasy menu screen sure. it's very because it's this big long sustained arpeggio that's uh, very close like maybe even the same key as the notes in that but it just hits that same nostalgia thing of like oh my god i'm six again yeah you know, for that just instant and then you're like oh no i'm just kidding i'm still miserable and depressed um yeah i i have two thoughts of, like it makes me think about um like when i was a small child on long island what i would do all the time is i would just go to the i would like swim out into the water of the long island sound mm-hmm. and there, there was like a big rock on our beach that was like a little way out and i would cl- 
scramble up on it and I would <laughs> sing the songs from The Little Mermaid by myself into the water for like an amount of time that was like my mom would be like, okay, you gotta you gotta come out of the water now. I'm like a little concerned. <laughs> like this I'd just be like sitting on this boulder yeah. in the water, like singing the songs from The Little Mermaid because they go so hard they they go really like part of your world especially and uh, i'm gonna say this right now because everyone is like oh my god part of your world and somewhere that's green are the same song first off no they're not i i am (laughs) i am taking us there is the there is like one melodic line near the end of each song that is the same but structurally compositionally i think they are there's there's enough difference that I I am ready to shoot that down. Um, they serve, like, they serve conceptually, similar fun- yeah. conceptually and politically. They're so different. Yeah, yeah I mean, they, sure. they serve they serve similar functions, but also like part of your world is so earnest. I mean, somewhere that's green is earnest, but also like it's kind of poking fun of like what she she is earnest about silly things like going to bed at uh, going to bed early, the kids watching Howdy Doody, like this weird sort of like. Faux like fifties sixties nuclear family ideal out of a catalog yeah yes mm-hmm. um so there's there's humor to it um it's like a i i thought i think it's like sincere camp which is such uh i mean we talked about this i, I i'm sure this this came up in the heather's episode and i think this came up in the mean girls uh episode as well when we hairspray were talking ha- yeah hairspray was the one the big one we were talking about this that line of like trying to be sincere and campy i think this mm-hmm. is like maybe the example of uh, of the musical is the mm-hmm. example of something being able to hit both of those targets so well yeah and i think somewhere that screen like maybe does that most effectively because like that you know that song it's like oh it's supposed to be kind of like satirical and kind of funny but like it makes me so sad i feel so sad every single time i'm just like devastated by it because it's like when like you know like yeah okay it's like she wants to have furniture that's got like plastic on the couch or whatever (laughs) like that's a funny thing to aspire to but it's like oh no it's like not funny that like the sort of like base level bourgeois existence is like so unbelievably fantastically aspirational that it is like an impossible dream for you it's like yeah. yeah that's what fucking poverty is like and that's awful yeah oh good yeah great lyricist great like he howard ashman just like had this brilliant command of like how songs in musicals can and should work just mm-hmm. like what like he like he understood that like a music a song has to have a function and like within that function like this is how like these lyrics will operate in this way and this way and this way um but so yeah so uh the kurt vonnegut show mr rosewater great run at the wpa they a producer brought it to like a commercial off-broadway run and it flopped it just didn't do Mm. it just like it was a show built. It's a great lesson for anyone out there. It was a show built for a small house. And sometimes those don't work in commercial big house runs. Sometimes you build a show for an intimate space. And sometimes that's where it should stay, which we'll get to with Little Shop, a show that famously didn't transfer to Broadway in its off from in its 80s run. It ran off Broadway for five years because they knew that's where it was going to be successful and it was. Um, but yeah, mm. so after Mr. Rosewater, which again is satirical, but it's also, I would say, a little more earnest and a little more serious than Little Sharp. 
um, and it has like this huge ensemble. Um, that show flopped, and Ashman was like, "We're gonna do something fun. We're gonna do something intimate, <laughs> and we're gonna do something that'll make us laugh." And so he apparently he'd like watched this film when he was a kid. Um, and he's like, I appreciate, and yeah, sort of like we've been talking about. He's like, I appreciate it for what it is, even if I recognize that it's not great. <laughs> but like, let's, let's find something. Let's find something in there. And I think they really, like in trying to figure, like they found the stuff that like was interesting, but like wasn't working on the surface of Little Shop. So like the Audrey Seymour romance, like they're like, okay, this does not work in the film at all. That's true. <laughs> but but maybe it could. Maybe if we actually like humanized it and try and, and actually try to like put something uh some meat in no actually pun intended. Put some meat into it. Uh <laughs> then then maybe then Hot. maybe we'd uh, <laughs> then maybe we'd get somewhere. Um Howard Ashman also they were clearly like we want to do a 60s pastiche a, a 50s and mm-hmm. 60s pastiche. We want to like pay tributes to the era that this film came out in. And po- po- again, like again, like they are both poking fun at and paying homage to this era in this really beautiful way. Um, they were big fans of Mad Men, and they just thought they were going to put that on stage. <laughs> there you go. Well, the, he called it the dark side of Greece. Is how mm. sort of how he described this. I mean, I mean, literally the the urchins, as they are described. Um, and we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into sort of what I, the, sort of the role of, mm. of sort of black culture in this musical, because that is a whole, that's a whole yeah. conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the characters are literally named Chiffon, Crystal, and Ronette, who are, mm-hmm. those are 60s girl groups, the Chiffons, the yeah, Crystals, Yeah, I was listening a lot to the Crystals um, in the last few days to kind of yeah. just remember what they sound like. Um, and so fucking good yeah. just so yeah. good oh yeah um, but you can, and definitely being like ah yes right this is where so much of the the, the sort of style of this musical comes from yeah um i so i i we I sent around the the script sort of just like the licensed like uh, stage script and there's this beautiful note uh, howard ashman wrote this long note and i want to read just like a portion of it because i feel like it is so emblematic of what i think is so lovely about this show so he says quote Little Shop of Horrors satirizes many things. Science fiction, B-movies, musical comedy itself, and even the Faust legend. There will therefore be a temptation to play it for camp and low comedy. This is a great and potentially fatal mistake. The script keeps its tongue firmly in check, so the actors should not. Instead, they should play with simplicity honesty and sweetness even when events are at their most outlandish the show's individual style air quotes will evolve naturally from the words themselves and an approach to acting and singing them that is almost childlike in its sincerity and intensity having directed the original new york production of little shop myself which he did and subsequently, having seen it in many versions and even many languages i can vouch for the fact that when little shop is at its most honest it is also at its funniest and most enjoyable. Um, and I say this also to say the most, the last time that I've seen a stage production, um, and I will call this company out by name because they do not exist anymore. Uh, I do s- it. Uh, I saw the Mercury Theater production, uh, which, the, which a few years ago, I, I reviewed it. Um, and that production, I mean, there were some really lovely actors in it, really lovely performances, but it, it, they clearly, either didn't read this note or read it mm. and didn't care. It was so 
campy. It was so making fun of itself, especially the stuff about Audrey being abused by Oren, her, her now in the show, the dentist boyfriend. They're like, they almost, I mean, there's maybe like one line where it's like making fun of Audrey, but I feel like for the most part, the stage show and the, and the movie as well, don't make Audrey the joke in that sense. Like they don't make, they turn, <laughs> they don't turn her abuse into a joke. And this production somehow found ways to do that. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a real, I found it to be yeah. a really cruel production and one that just sort of leaned into the satire. Um, yeah. I mean, like it's in the word, like th- the performances just need to be honest and then you will get humor out. I mean, that's what comedy is, right? It's being, it's being honest under ridiculous like, circumstances. Right, it's, like, it's like committing to the bit, yes. right? Instead of like pointing at the bit that you're ostensibly doing the whole time. Yes. Um, but yeah. yeah, like Seth MacFarlane or something. <laughs> yeah. What a what a fucking comedic legend. We love. Yeah. I'm gonna take that Howard Ashman quote and turn it into a bullet and shoot it into the heads of everybody adapting a movie into a musical. Yeah. They start. I think that'd be great. Like Beetlejuice is the first thing that came to mind. When sure. Being, uh, just like. Look, look at what we're doing. Look at what we're doing here. You know, that's what the whole show feels like. No, just be honest. Just be, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing. That means that you have to write a good script, though, is a bunch of these (laughs) problems, too. (laughs) And yeah, and I think Ashman's script is very good. So yeah, and so before we just like go like song by song. Yeah, so this show obviously is a, a pastiche and homage to and parody of this sort of like 50 sound and this 60 sound, especially for like the, the the urchin characters so yeah so in the original production of little shop and most major productions not all and i'll get to that in a second most major productions most but pretty much the entire like lead cast is white and you have i believe the only characters who are explicitly written as black are the the urchin characters uh crystal Mm. uh chiffon and renette um it is obviously it is it is weird I like I get like you know like obviously like Ashman had I mean like had this sort of like affinity for like other other cultures in a way that you could call appropriative and I think it's fair it, you it's I mm. wouldn't it wouldn't be the worst thing to call it appropriative I mean he is the one who he pitched Aladdin even though he didn't live to sort of finish Aladdin unfortunately but mm-hmm. like that was his that was his brainchild obviously um he was the one who was like, why isn't Sebastian the Crab Jamaican? That'd be fun. Uh, like, he's sort of like, <laughs> like, I would say... Good decision at the end of the day, but uh, I don't know about the motivations behind yeah, it. Yeah, that's, and that's the thing. Like, he, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like what we talked about. Uh, it, 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 I would say there isn't cruelty behind it, but it's this, it's this thing of just right. like, oh, like, I want to, the way that I see... Like, I want to pay homage to, like, all of these different cultures and all these different, like, styles of songwriting or or what have you. As a, like, and obviously, like, maybe a better way would be to, like, use one's clout to support other writers who are not white, who are not male. Um, but his way was to just, like, write that into his material. Um, a very colonial, like... Yes. ...way of taking that. And, like, and so I would say, like, most famously, there was this uh, Pasadena Playhouse production of Little Shop uh, a few years back. Uh, that had uh, non-white leads as mm. uh, Audrey and uh, Seymour. Uh, it had George Salazar, uh, famously from Be More Chill. He played uh, Seymour and uh, MJ Rodriguez from the show Pose. Uh, she played uh, 
she played Audrey and obviously there was like big buzz. It's like, Oh, there's a, a trans woman playing Audrey. And I remember MJ at the time was just like, yeah, that shouldn't be fucking news. Like that, like that should just be like <laughs> the not like trans people should just be able to play characters and honor their truth. Um, one would think. Um, yeah. And like, there's, there's like nothing about Audrey's character as written that like, sort of precludes the possibility of her being no, trans and there no. is stuff in there that supports that as a casting choice. Yeah. Like I would say that like that the that things about um how that character is presented like support that as a reading. I mean I would say any of these characters, right? I mean these are about characters who live in Skid Row, who are who are like working class, who are like uh, uh the poor working class characters. Like yeah, it would it Again, it, it probably would support the text for them not to be played by white actors. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. fucking do it! Anyone! <laughs> right. When theater's back, you don't have to fucking cast white people in your little short production. It's mm. it's fine. You don't have to. <laughs> right. Um, right. There's an alien talking plant. We'll buy it. Yes! We'll buy whatever! <laughs> right. Great. Yeah. I, just, I felt like that, that that just had to be said because I feel like that's just such a... That, that, mm-hmm. there, is, there, is, there is cultural baggage with this show and just sort of... Yeah, like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then I think also that there's sort of like a... The, the, I feel like there's like sort of a racialization of the plant oh, that happened in that like that I feel like from production to production really varies in how that goes. Yeah, because yeah, it's like because that's the thing. Like if 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 you are part of like an asshole uh, theater company who is traditionally in like gross quotes uh, producing yeah. the show, <laughs> if you are a black actor, you are either going to be in the ensemble or you are going to be off stage singing backstage uh being a plot um mm-hmm. that's again in a in a quote-unquote traditional uh production of this show um so I, I like i get it it's like it's like if that's sort of what you, even like as i think like as howard ashman describes the the urchins in the script they are the characters who like know the most they are sort of like the they are supposed to they are written as the smartest characters in the room they are still the ensemble. They are still side characters, even if they are sort of the most knowledgeable in the no characters in this in this show. Um, mm. here, so and yeah, and yeah. So before we even dig into this show, I feel like I just want to like so yeah, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, based off of this show, essentially Howard Ashman tries to get a Broadway show. He writes this show called Smile. Uh, with uh, Marvin Hamlish of a chorus line fame. It's essentially what if a chorus line, but a high school beauty pageant. Um, That's essentially Ah. what it is. And it's based on a movie. So we're going to do an episode about it. So I don't want to dig, I I don't want to dig too deep into it. Um, It's a nice show. Uh, That's all I'll say. Um, But it (laughs) it flopped super hard. And so after that, like he got, he got a, he got a letter Hmm. from everyone's favorite asshole, Jeffrey Katzenberg, um, saying, Hey, we'd love for you to look at, uh, these Disney movies uh, that we're working on. Uh, one of them being Little Mermaid. And so that was sort of like the, the, uh, sort of like the road diverged in a yellow wood sort of like, Oh, this is the path he took of like, maybe if smile was a success, he wouldn't have done Little Mermaid. Uh, he was just like in, he was in a place where he's like, my Broadway career is going nowhere. Sure, I'll look, take a look at this uh, animated film about a mermaid. Um, and he... I feel like the takeaway here is to not ever name a project Smile between this and, like, <laughs> Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. <laughs> That's and, very like, true. the saga of that album. Just, like, 
Don't do it. Got a project? Bad title. Don't call it smile. It's a, it is Don't a cursed title. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and he brought ha- he brought Alan Menken along with him. And yeah, of course, Little Mermaid blew up. They they did beauty. Incredible Ma- film. It is. Yeah, Be- I mean, truly. Yeah, I mean, Little Mermaid. I once watched it 11 times in six days. I mean, Little Mermaid. According to and- my parents. <laughs> <laughs> Little Mermaid and Be- the first movie I ever saw in the theater. It's a beautiful film. Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, I think, are just like, again, also just like musically. Those songs, mm-hmm. like Belle, just like as an opening number, is genius. You're packing so much information and so much character and just so much like this world building into one song. It's brilliant. It's masterful. Um, and then you yeah, have Howard Ashman starts to write lyrics for Aladdin. He writes like Arabian Nights. He writes Friend Like Me. He writes Prince Ali. And then he passes. And there are some other songs that were cut that he wrote, but then he passes away. Um, side note, Friend Like Me, maybe the best sequence in any Disney Renaissance film. That sequence is just fucking brilliant. The animation is um, gonzo. Uh, it's <laughs> bananas. <laughs> And also a word I would perhaps use to describe Robin Williams' voice acting style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, gosh, bananas. Um, <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. Every song in this show is good. Um, full stop. Yeah. Um, so, let's, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll go through the song list and also just, like, obviously, the plot's pretty different um, from, mm-hmm. the, uh, from the movie. <laughs> yeah, by quite a bit. Also, one thing that's maybe worth mentioning, too, about um, the location is that both uh, the film and the musical are set in Skid Row, but uh, like the film is set in the Skid Row of L.A. Oh, and the, okay. Um, or I understand it to be the Skid Row. You see palm trees at some point, <laughs> <Sure>. so I assume <laughs> I assume it's supposed to be the Skid Row. Of and this LA. and this is New York, obviously. Yeah. Right, and so mm. um, both locations have a place that is referred to as Skid Row, um, and. But yeah, that that transposition of location feels like it's a notable change. Um, and maybe that's just because like it's closer to where the people who were writing the things were. Yeah, and they're what like, they were speaking to. Yeah, they're like, we live in New York. We know New York. Let's write about. It. Yeah, again, I, and like the WPA, like I mean, like reading about the WPA, it sounds like it sounds like a classic Chicago storefront. It's just like this like cheap, like whole. It, it's, it sounds like Mary Archie, the late Mary Archie. Uh, it was, it was like, I miss those boys. <laughs> just, just like, you know, but like just like a completely like inaccessible like upper flight of stairs like above another business there's a guy playing two saxophones at once yeah he lives in a camper outside <laughs> just like packing everything into a space that's too small but again just like the ambition is off the charts um again probably illegal but again you gotta get <laughs> you gotta give him something you got there's some gumption there um <laughs> absolutely but yeah so uh little shop of horrors again it it opens uh uh, with a with the title song, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, every again, every again, I'm just gonna gush about this show because every song is the catchiest <laughs> thing in the world. Um, I don't, like I'm not I, I could just be here just like singing every single song. Um, but yeah, so you get Little Shop. It's just like again the the urchins introducing us to this world. Um, the I guess I'd say like the the true like opening number. Like I because yeah, this I mean. This set the Disney standard. I would say, like, this set sort of, like, the Disney style of, like, you get, like, the open, the world-building opening number. You get the I Want song. You get the villain song. You, like, it's... It set, like, the standard for, like, what a good... Mu- what a good musical can be and what... I mean, obviously, what a good movie musical can be. Um, Like, so, like, Skid Row, parentheses, downtown. 
I mean, just like you. It's <laughs> that good. It's such a good song. It it's is. crazy so how good. good of a song it is. It's like yeah. There's a there's a song by the Crystals called um, Uptown um, that I feel like kind of evokes this song a little bit for me. Yeah. Like just something about the spirit of it, um, and it's like talking about going um, from uptown to downtown and kind of like the um, sort of social stratification of the city and like one's emotional state um that yeah i felt like that there was a little bit of a an allusion to that track happening well it's um, which it's, i believe is a phil specter produced track yeah, yeah I, uh, yikes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a lot of yikes <laughs> in that world um so and it's like it is both like acting as like a, a parody homage pastiche of that song it is acting as yeah so audrey um is uh in an abusive relationship with her dentist boyfriend Oren uh Scrivello, uh who is a terrifying dentist which we'll get to in a second and setting up mm-hmm. like her wants and needs and desires and then setting up Seymour and his uh, just this the end of the the end of the song with like Seymour and Audrey with just like the I gotta get out of here down this, oh my like, god so it's good. perfect and the music too, the bump, yadam, bayam. I love the like really like just driving underscore and the yeah. everybody at least in the movie, but I mean even sort of in the like stage productions I've seen everybody else on Skid Row is a little frightening, but also like <laughs> sure. only because they're also so down and out, and it's yeah. like this weird confrontational like every moment of your life is is <laughs> confrontational and hard. Uh, but then, mm-hmm. and then like, uh, Seymour gets like a few sort of like, uh, yeah, like these sort of like fifties, like, uh, like quartet songs. Like that. I mean, Dadu is just like, it's just him like telling the story of finding the strange and in- interesting plant. Um, and then like, yeah, grow, grow for me, especially like, I, I know which recordings, if what recordings you'll listen to. Like I listened to the, the off Broadway one, the original one. And it's, I mean, I love it. I love just sort of the, Again, the sort of like, oh, they they recorded this in the theater, like in like, it's it, it's not cheap. It's just like it sounds so like early eighties off Broadway, um, which I I love so much, and just like I give and your sunlight, uh, da da rain, just like that <laughs> that sound is just so it's and and just like it's him singing like a love ballad to his little plant, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's just like so, it's all so sincere. Yes. Right? And, exactly. and so you're like, you can't help but like root for him and like root alongside him for this like little plant to grow, even though you kind of know already that it's not going to go well. It ain't, it ain't going to be great. And yeah, and like the, the, so the plant in this one, um, which, so they create this, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Martin Robinson uh, designed the, Audrey, the original Audrey 2 plant. Um, which has now <laughs> there are there are like so many like cottage industries of like people who make Audrey twos. They are just like it it looked like people like make their living off of like this because like it yeah, like if you're because first of all, this is just an easy show to do as just like a small theater or a community theater. And but you're just like, okay, well, how the fuck are we gonna like make these plants? <laughs> and so you right. just like you find a company and just like you find some guy who's like, well, I made them. And they, and they all they all for the most part 
they're all like the little Pac-Man thing, right? They're just like the little mm-hmm. like nom 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 nom. Um, and so <laughs> and you if you don't hire one of those professionals, you end up on the low-budget Audrey Two Tumblr page, which what? is amazing. Oh, no, it exists. Oh, have you never seen this? No. Oh my god! It's much. Uh, it's it's. I would say it's a sister site of the low-budget Beast Tumblr yes. pages that are <laughs> also pretty rough. There's a low-budget the into the woods. There's like the low-budget into the woods ones. I love oh, too. Oh yeah, the wolves. Or the the wolves. The milky. The milky whites um but yeah i low budget <laughs> order too it's again like if you don't have to do the martin robinson designs like you can try and find a creative way of doing this plant um that isn't the little muppet thing the muppet thing is it's great and it's iconic but mm-hmm. and it feels very alive right <laughs> just because like our brains are like we see something that looks like a mouth opening and closing yes. while we hear sounds but um, we yeah, are like... pattern seeking creatures <laughs> that's a mouth that's mm-hmm. talking um yeah so you got like the little pod one and then like there's like the one in the next scene where it's like a little bigger and the seymour has like a fake arm and then his right arm is puppeteering the little bigger audrey too Mm -hmm. um yeah so that's the song you never know um which they changed to yeah they changed to some fun now in the in the 87 film whatever um it's a nice song that the the urchins get um we already talked in depth about somewhere that's green great song or, uh, yeah, and Ellen Green, who is like the original Audrey, and then also played Audrey in the film. I mean, I mean, this is her role. Like, and mm-hmm. and I feel like, for the most part, I feel like every actor is trying to do an Ellen Green when they mm-hmm. are doing a little shop. I think the best the best contemporary Audreys are probably those who are like, who? I what are you talking about? Like, they're the ones who are just like trying to. <laughs> deviate from that i mean like i'd be like i remember even in like the stage directions or like the character descriptions for like seymour and audrey i think howard ashman's like seymour is not jerry lewis and audrey is not dumb and it's like every i feel like the the mercury production i saw seymour was jerry lewis and audrey was dumb um yeah i uh i feel like (laughs) <laughs> the, there you go. There's a low budget one. Wow, uh, so, that's incredible. So for that's everyone great. at home, Brian has made their background. Um, God, it looks like a Star Wars creature. It, it looks like a tent. Like, a... like it looks like a fort I would make inside somebody's like finished basement in fourth grade or something. Oh my God, Brian! With some with some lipstick on. Brian, save right, that. Yeah. We will tweet that out when this episode drops. Yeah, how do I do a screenshot? I don't even know. <laughs> incredible oh no there's got to be a way to do it right uh i mean i just took a screenshot of us right now i also did (laughs) Um, that's so um, funny that's really funny um we'll we'll link this picture we'll link the tumblr it'll be great um yeah we get dentist Um, which is a fun song Oh, one thing i did want to say about ellen green while you're talking about ellen green yes ellen green is that um a thing that i did come across in my uh wikipedia journeys before this was that both Ellen Green and Alan Menken had dads who were dentists. Oh, great. Which, strange. which, which feels important somehow. <laughs> Edible, perhaps. I don't maybe, know. Maybe, uh, uh, Alan Menken is the <laughs> secret editor at large of pain magazine. <laughs> it all ties together. Um, and then yeah, Ellen like Green, spe- yeah. specifically like New York Jewish, like in i think brooklyn dentist <laughs> uh and then ellen green so a few years ago they did this like i think it was like a few nights uh of a like a concert version 
of Little Shop with Jake Gyllenhaal as Seymour, which I would have ah. paid big money to see because I love Jake Gyllenhaal. And he, ah. he's, a, he's a very fascinating actor just in general, and especially as a musical theater actor. But then Ellen Green was Audrey. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah. Like, what what is like having a, like a big old age gap in there do? That's it. Yeah. That's interesting. Who that's knows? fun. I think I that's heard fun. her perform. She was on some, maybe it was an award show or something at like right around the time they were going to put this up. And like, she still has it. Oh, yeah. So Hell yeah. hard. My only problem with that, and I also love Jake Gyllenhaal, is that like, He's hot and cool. I, so though, this is and Seymour this, I feel is like a he's, nerd. This is what too has tall. happened. This is what too has happened. Too tall, yeah. Too this, tall, too hot. This is what has happened recently. That they keep casting hot people as Seymour. Seymour is a fucking nerd. He is a yeah. He's gonna be nebbish as fuck. And I'm not saying that like nerds aren't hot. If they mm-hmm. weren't, I would be ruined. Um, my <laughs> career, my career would be ruined. Um, but like you can't. But like cast... Jake Gyllenhaal is six feet tall. Yeah, also like. There was a a recent off-Broadway revival where they cast Jonathan Groff as Seymour. Jonathan Groff is not Seymour. He's a fucking, like, stereotypical, like, attractive man. Like, Also, the dentist guy, the boyfriend, should be, like, bigger (laughs) and more attractive than him for that to work at all. Like, he's got to be intimidating, you know? Who's who's hotter than Jake Gyllenhaal? Brad Pitt's playing the fucking, like, dentist? Well, no, Taron Killam (laughs) played the dentist in this version. Uh, from it was like he's from S. He's an SNL. He was on SNL. I think this this was like his first big thing after I believe they fired him from SNL. Um, He's like I guess good looking. Yeah, I guess he's he's, and then he played (laughs) King George in Hamilton for a little bit. Uh, Okay, Um, yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, because I think it's important that like a sort of a um, like and even going back to the Corman film, like I think the the sort of um, insufficient quote-unquote masculinity right like of seymour is uh is part of the story like i feel like um the fact that like in he's supposed to be like constantly tripping over himself he's supposed to be like sort of small and weak and like he's a goofball he's a yeah and and i think like is and like even in like i think part of the point of the stuff with like showing the relationship with his mother in the sure. 1960 film is like to show that like yeah he's also like like a mama's boy right yeah. like and is like a kind of infantilized like doesn't for sure is, is like not is like maybe doesn't come across as like being a grown adult listen just just like david s pumpkin skeletons seymour's nerdiness is part of it uh, <laughs> yeah it seems important um, um we d- yeah dentist which is again very funny like yeah like grease style song that the de- like and again like very funny lyric how ashman clever lyricist uh absolutely. you have a yeah you have a, yeah uh I'd, i wish i had examples of lyrics to pull up just fucking listen to little shop just like every lyric is gold and like beautifully uh constructed um there is this like, cute song that they sing called close for renovation which is just like a little snippet of a song um and i love the stage direction that howard ashman threw in there for the song quote and all the while the three of them uh seymour uh audrey and mushnik are, are singing and dancing like fugitives from snow white and the seven dwarves which is to say <laughs> very merrily indeed <laughs> wow 
get very uh, again, like, it is evocative. Throw yeah. in throw in Disney reference. Like he clearly like was acquainted with and loved Disney before he started working for the mouse. Which I mean, yeah, good on him. Um, you got Mushnik, Mushnik and oh yeah, so yeah, so Mushnik and son. Uh, Mushnik overhears like a conversation that like the dentist is having with Seymour where he's like you should just take the plant and split and so Mushnik is worried so he adopts Seymour and I get I, also I think it's just an excuse for them to write like a Yiddish like <laughs> old school like Jewish song which I'm like totally. yeah fucking go for it throw your Jewish pasti- pastiche song in there um, and then of course we get to the plant singing we get to Audrey too singing feed me parentheses get it which is just i mean like a lot of parentheses titles in this show it, i know <laughs> yeah a lot of them have them uh again like i feel like alan menken menken and ashman just especially just like they got that villain song down to a t- like between like this poor unfortunate souls and oh Ga- my and god Ga- and, Ga- and gaston like they're Three just in a row. They're just like, we know how to take the essence of a character and boil it down musically, lyrically, structurally. Like this, again, like this song's doing so much. It is introducing just like who this plant is and how they sing, how they are going to uh, freaking like, um, yeah. How, yeah, be a guest shot, get a guest shot on Jack Parr. How do you like a date with Hedy Lamar? You're going to get it. Like this fucking like ridiculous, like, pop culture references um just like that just they can so like boil down the essence of a character into a song wonderfully and this and then of course like the best part of it i mean and this is the point of having a nebbishy nerdy seymour um is that in the middle of the song when he's just like i don't know and he just like breaks down like that it's yeah. just like, that goes back into motown ballad yeah. it feels really similar to uh uh uh, whatever his song is with the plant earlier. Grow for me. Grow for yeah. me. It feels really similar. And it, again, it's like, but Very again, it's smart. like, it's, it's something that like comes out of nowhere. And it's like something that you shouldn't, ex- it's a sound you shouldn't be expecting from this not traditionally hot Seymour. Right. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, you've like found something in yourself that maybe like we didn't know was there because of this plant. Right. And so now you feel like it's, uh, it's like going to do something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, even though like the evil space plant was, within your heart all along <laughs> but yeah uh, i do think it's also worth mentioning that like in a, this sort of space dimension well maybe maybe it's too soon to talk about that um no go for it yeah so like the because we get earlier the kind of fact that like there was like a total eclipse mm. oh yeah, yeah, yeah that that like part of the acquiring of this plant was because like he was out getting plants and there uh and then there was a total eclipse and um and then this plant kind of appeared. Yes. Right? And so there's this, the this idea that there's like some eclipse of the sun. Bing. Bing. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. That, um, that there's like already kind of a maybe supernatural or like kind of extraterrestrial um, yeah. element or celestial element. Um, whereas like in the, um, in the original film, I think it's implied that like Seymour has been like crossbreeding and experimenting yeah. with a bunch of different plants. I think it's like there's there's like less of a concern about saying, where not, it comes not from. They're not worried about yeah, it. Just like, like, I think it's supposed, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like supposed to be a cross between a Venus flytrap and some other kind of plant yeah. that he's been like experimenting. Yeah. No, this um, one is explicitly it, like an alien, probably. Right. 
Right. It's like, oh, this is like coming from elsewhere. This isn't the result of like Seymour's tinkering in the no. greenhouse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they make, I mean, they make it a lot more explicit in the 87 film. The plant literally mm-hmm. sings a song called Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. Um, right. But yes, I think it is. Yeah, I think there is the, the heavy implication that it is some sort of like otherworldly being sent here to take over. Which I think is partially also just related to the fact that the plot of the musical does seem concerned with a world that is larger than just the couple of characters. Yes. Um, whereas like the original film, I think in part because of wanting to keep this sort of scale of production really small, right. Is that it's like mostly about the story of these like couple of people uh, in this one plant. And it's not necessarily about like a sort of global scale. <laughs> uh issue world for... domination yes exactly. Right, exactly but then yeah i think it's just also just like tying back into like the b-movie tropes right they're like mm-hmm. like obviously like stuff with aliens and stuff with space is sort of like a huge huge trope then there's like outside of like monster stuff like i feel like alien stuff was just like another sort of like oft mind uh part of b-movie culture absolutely absolutely and and corman being like a big part of that yes Um, like monster construction so then of course another sort of facet of uh the dentist character is that he is addicted to his uh laughing gas uh he has this i definitely in my life have known at least one dentist who was addicted to laughing gas (laughs) good good i mean if you if i had access to that much nitrous i i would surely imbibe yeah right uh yeah I mean yeah again if if listen if if you're not gonna get caught fucking laugh laugh your ass off um <laughs> but yeah and so yeah so that's so that's a song um that it's, it's a fun song you get like the sort of like the Seymour uh sitting in the chair they're just like now do it now uh which is very fun and then you have the the dentist laughing his off laughing his ass off begging. Uh, for his life um and i love yes yeah, i love the lyrics uh seymour what pulled it up what we have here is an ethical dilemma lest i help him get the mask removed he doesn't have a prayer true the gun was never fired but the way of it transpired i could finish him with simple laissez-faire i'm just like these are just like next life and they're not like again we we i think we kind of touch upon this in like other episodes and especially like you know like stuff with sondheim where like the, or, uh, the, a recent example was Mean Girls, where I feel like the character of Karen, who is written as a very uh, simple character, has very complex lyrics that do not make sense for that character to sing. Mm. Um, mm. I think here, like, the lyrics are clever, but, like, they're not something, like, out of the range of these characters. Like, they are, like, mm-hmm. they, they exist within the vocabulary, they exist within the mindset of who is singing them. They're just clever. <laughs> they're just, mm-hmm. like, yeah. very, it's just, like, some great wordplay happening. Absolutely. Uh, it's a fun time. Uh, so that's the end of Act One. Dentist uh, again, and this is—I mean, this is kind of harkening back, right, to the to the film, right, where it's like he isn't killing him per se; he's just letting him die. Right. There is still sort of like a of like a freak accident element to how the dentist dies. <laughs> like, even though he goes there with maybe the intent to kill him, he but it's like, <laughs> right, but he like him. doesn't, but he like doesn't pull, like he doesn't do it though. He's like, uh, sure. he's like, you know, kind of hemming and hawing about like whether or not he's gonna. And then the dentist basically yeah. accidentally puts himself in a position where, where then he, he could just sort of let it happen. Exactly. Um, we don't uh, get the Wilberforce uh, Jack Nicholson character. He has been cut from the stage show. Um, but again, tune into our Patreon to find out 
about how Bill Murray brings him back. Uh, <laughs> very funny. Uh, yeah. And like, I understand why that's like, that bit is not essential to the plot. Yes. Um, but, and requires like another actor. Yes. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, we're good. It's a fun yes. bit. Um, oh, it's a I fun will... bit. So I'm glad it came back. And I will uh, say, I missed this, uh, the stage direction during Mushnik and Son. Uh, Mushnik sings and dances his proposition like a demented refugee from Fiddler on the Roof. Again, Ashman. <laughs> Ashman just fucking. These, these damn. Uh, these stage directions, they are demented. Uh, act two. Uh, the plant is even bigger. It is at its biggest. I'm guessing the the terrifying uh, Audrey that you shared with us, uh, Bran. I'm guessing that is the that production's final Audrey too. I assume. I, I would hope. I hope it doesn't get bigger than that. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you get this like cute little number call back in the morning. The Rose Bowl, Seymour. The Rose Bowl. Uh, it's very cute. Uh, Audrey is sad because Aaron is missing. Uh, and then and the Rose Bowl bit makes maybe more sense <laughs> when it's set in LA where the Rose Bowl is. Ah, um, whatever, they're shipping flowers out. Yeah. They're successful enough they can ship flowers out to LA. Uh, yeah. Suddenly Seymour, again, I again, like I, these, I think they should be very sort of nerdy, earnest characters because when they then they sing this power ballad with each other i think it's that much funnier but also that much get that much more powerful that they are just like finally like getting to their core selves finally singing this love and again it is a great fucking song oh it's so good yeah uh, it's it's such a moving like piece of music yeah. and like the um there's a, an article I really like um, by Casey Platt and Mark Morgan M. Page that's like a like a kind of trans reading of Little Shop mm-hmm. and like talks talking specifically about like the relationship between Audrey and Seymour yeah. um, and like that sort of moment both both like some somewhere that's green and Seymour like kind of about the like the kind of performance of gender that is happening in this sure. film and like how, man, I want to read this now so bad. Yeah. I'll put a, I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, it's cause I, I think it's like sort of thinking about how like an, an insufficient being perceived as like insufficient in their gender in some way <laughs> is like part of what, uh, like troubling both of them yeah. right like mm. that's seymour's like not enough of a of a man sure. right so he can't compete with Orin, the dentist mm. um or like can't be like a sort of successful business owner he can only be somebody's son um because of this like kind of financial situation yeah. that's happening um and then like that audrey's kind of like hyper femininity is like a thing that is kind of victimized by Oren right and it's like there's a lot of like that kind of stuff swirling around in these characters again um, and cost anyone cost anyone yeah. in these roles yeah yeah i it. i would love to play either of those parts anytime <laughs> there you go Ditto. um what was i gonna say oh thank you for posting that said uh we will we'll, we will link that when we are when you the audience is listening to this um <laughs> uh but yeah so then mushnik 
finds uh the, well, there's a line where they're like they only take the garbage out once a month in skid row uh so they like <laughs> find the dentist uniform with little red dots uh audrey two sings supper time another pretty damn good song um, baseline on that sure. one is mm-hmm. great <laughs> i even just love the beginning like the synth the like it's just like again it's like that it's it's a pretty good horror score i know it is like a mm-hmm. musical comedy at the end of the day but it's still there's a lot of great horror music in this thing mm-hmm. which is really fun Mm-hmm. Yeah, like think about this in relation to like John Carpenter synth. <gasps> oh, yeah. sure. oh, there's a term paper. Hell yeah. Yeah. Write a thesis on that. There's sense. a seminar <laughs> speech you can go give somewhere. <laughs> yes. Because um, I would argue that this, similarly to several John Carpenter films, is is a critique of capitalism. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, they live. I mean, that is an overt mm-hmm. anti capitalist mm-hmm. film. Uh, yeah. The Meek Shall Inherit. Oh, yeah. So, uh, before we do The Meek Shall Inherit, uh, <laughs> Seymour tricks Mush. Again, it's sort of like not killing him per se, but he's like, oh, I left the deposit. I left the money today in the plant. <laughs> Just knock. And then he gets the plant, and then Audrey to eats Mushnik. Um, his dad, his his old his old Jewish dad. Hmm, sad. Um, you get the meek shall inherit, which again is like, all right. Well, what do we? It's I, I, it's a first of all fun song, but then it's also like, all right. So what do we do with the actor who played Oren in the second act? Because they're, they're dead now, so uh, I guess we can have them do these like three quick changes, or I guess two quick changes for three characters. Um, yeah, so they're playing like all again. It's like 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 ashman said it's like playing with like the faust legend of like and i do like that sort of there there is more of an overt like there is more overt stakes for seymour doing what he's doing in the musical than in the movie where it's just like i guess i gotta keep this plant alive for (laughs) reasons uh right like the scale of it is much more like oh like i guess i'm gonna like kill a guy to keep this plant alive in this shop so this shop can make money exactly but this uh, is as this, opposed to yeah, like this is like scale oh here yes and i think it's like oh audrey will only love me if this plant is alive i'm gonna be successful yes yeah, so it's getting like uh lecturing tour offers like gonna be on the cover of life magazine and i get the song also is a bop um it's just like uh, <laughs> the urchins are singing most of it and then you get this like uh uh, the Seymour sort of like section of it. I take this offers. It means more killing. Just fucking. Sl- and then like singing about Audrey. Uh, rhymes Audrey with tawdry. Great. W- was waiting for that one. And <laughs> you made it happen. <laughs> um, did not. The dis- Ashman Minkin bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, yeah. So Audrey uh, gets lured to uh, Audrey, G- Audrey 2. Um, I do, I do like that they changed it to Audrey Two rather than Audrey Way Junior. Better. Um, Way and I, li- better, I like yeah. the nickname Tui. I don't know, it's just very fun. Cute, uh, yeah. it's a cute little nickname. Tui, you taught. Uh, you opened up your <laughs> trap, your thing. Uh, but then uh, Audrey Two like injures, like pretty much like impales Audrey, and she's like, "Feed me to the plant," because um, she will be somewhere that's green. <laughs> Mm-hmm. very sad mm-hmm. very sad um she gets eaten uh the guy comes in uh, i do like in the in the script i believe uh the actor playing the Oren track it is labeled as he plays Oren scrivello and everyone else 
<laughs> which is like yep that's mm-hmm. you're not wrong uh and so mm-hmm. he comes in as like some guy who's like i'm gonna we're gonna like take clippings of this plant and it's gonna be bigger than hula hoops uh seymour will not that he won't stand for this he tries to kill the plant he fails he gets eaten and then we get the the urchins like seeing this final subsequent to the events you have just witnessed, and it's like the the domination of uh, capitalism. I mean, the plant uh, the, the plant <laughs> is uh, spreading throughout the world. Um, and then yeah, and then again, you get the you get the fun in the original production. You get the fun thing of like yeah, their faces showing up in the little flowers blooming <laughs> from Audrey too. Um, and I even like don't feed the plants is just like a banger of a closing number. Um, <laughs> yes, it's just like yeah, so it's catchy. So fun. It's so fun. It's so catchy. It is again. It's like there is still like a seriousness to the message even within the camp of it all. Um, my favorite thing about the closing number is uh, they sing like that final line like "Don't feed the plants," and then you hear like Seymour and Audrey have that line where they're like "We'll have tomorrow," and all. I was always like, why the hell are they singing that? That has nothing to do with anything. There is a cut song called We'll Have Tomorrow. That was originally a duet that they had. And I guess that is (laughs) the one remnant of that song. That is just just inexplicably like one of the the second to last lines sung in the show. Um, But yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, a fucking banger of a show funny so good. earnest so fun. emotional fun um i'm i'm always excited about like cuz again like we've seen the fucking the muppet like the the original martin robinson design like that i mean that is what people do that is just like the go to like that's and because like in the play in the script the, like the production notes they label like so clearly like how to do this version of it so it is like if you don't have the time or resources to really invest in creating a new design, sure, it's there. Go for it. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 it works. It's functional. <laughs> right, exactly. but, I, but I am always really like excited uh, when I see different versions of Audrey 2 and seeing like different mm-hmm. creativity. Uh, there was a, an open-air production in England uh, where I believe... Uh, the plant was personified um it was a it was a it was a drag queen played audrey too huh. and i forget who she is unfortunately but it was like her like in like a audrey two style outfits like next to the plant mm. like personifying it in that way um the pasadena playhouse production i talked about it was it's like a little purple like stick of a thing that like it's like it like bloomed outwards um so it wasn't like exactly like muppeting along um like the plant was almost like implied, like from the uh. shadow. It was like an empty stage, but from like the shadows of the stage, these like pink and mm. purple tentacles would emerge. So like, there's more of the implication of Audrey too than the actual physical presence of the of mm. the plant. So I'm just sort, sort of like a Jaws approach. That's exactly yes. what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is exactly a Jaws approach to Audrey too. Yeah. So it's I'm I'm I think people can make whatever choices they want, but also like. The little Muppet plant is also fine too. It works. Um, yeah, I and yeah, I just there are so many other musicals that we're gonna talk about in the future of this podcast that are that l- looked at this approach of taking a very badly made B movie and trying to make a musical out of it. That some of them I still like, but I don't think any of them were able to match again the 
the sincerity, the sincerity and earnestness that you find in in Little Shop of Horrors. And again, this thing fucking led to the Marvel Cinematic Universe taking over <laughs> film discourse. Um, that is what Audrey 2 has done. Well done, you motherfucker from outer space. Wow. <laughs> wow. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? I mean, no, you're not. I mean, I think it's interesting because, like, the, like, the thinking about what the politics of this musical are sure. or might be, right? And, like, and the the politics of the original film are like sort of barely present, but like yeah. are, um, are things that like Corman talks about, like making movies that are kind of critical of, of, of capitalism and critical of the, the art world and mm-hmm. critical of, of various things, but like didn't really get overtly political in his movies until he made, um, film called the intruder, which is a William Shatner movie right. about like, segregation and is like really intense and like they like people almost got killed on the set of making that movie because it was like around this time period (laughs) and like the yeah and so like Norman did make some like overtly political work also um but uh but that was one of the only movies he made that he didn't make a bunch of money on (laughs) So but, I, mean, <laughs> I think I, that tells you something about I, the choices he made. And I think Alan Menken has commented, like, I think he, the, I think he literally, he like tweeted out, like, in response to someone, he is like, "No, this was we did write this show overtly as a criticism of late stage capitalism. Like that was like part of the DNA of us wanting to write this show." Yeah, and I think it's there, and I, but I think it's very present, but like not, um, it doesn't the the sort of political message isn't this thing that's like separate from the characters and their lives that gets like kind of overlaid on top of it. Yeah. And the characters also don't get like depoliticized. And I feel like so many things, it's like either one or the other of those things is happening. Yes. And here it's like, no, the politics are just like in the reality of the characters. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, this is like what Audrey's life is like. And this is what Seymour's life is like. And that's why he's making the choices he's making. The show is literally about people below the poverty line willing to do terrible things for the purpose of up of, of individualistic upward mobility mm-hmm. like it's right it's in the text mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, it's weird too to think that like a a legendary b movie maker corman inspire and his this movie inspired this this thing which goes on to create as you say the disney empire which has pretty much completely eliminated B movie yes. other than like asylum and porn. And that's yeah. all we have. Now, no, it is true know? that sort of the, the, the mass Disney empire has sort of completely eliminate. I mean, we talked about this on Hesper as well. It's completely eliminated the, uh, the existence of the, it, it, it has created such a wide gap in the independent film market. Um, yes. To the point of almost uh, to in, endanger, endangerment, not extinction yeah. yet. Yeah, I mean, because I think right now, like the we're in a weird, such a strange moment with like film distribution. Yes, and I mean, especially right now, while theaters right. are closed, and like nobody really, there's there's a lot of uncertainty about like where to turn to find films, yeah. um, and I feel like right now there's this kind of like divide between like 
the people who like watch things that are on Netflix and go to movie theaters and see the things that are in like a chain movie theater. And then there's like the people who have access to like several different obscure streaming services that show art film yeah like and are assholes like me with a bunch of criterion dvds like i i lucky that my criterion thing is fucking in the other room yeah no it's yeah it's like it's like yeah like uh, yeah no it's like us assholes who like subscribe to like movie and shudder and like uh Mm -hmm. we'll go to like see mandy at midnight at the music box (laughs) right and it's like and part of it is like how then like where is the sort of space for um like kind of a curatorial eye mm-hmm. is kind of the challenge, yeah. right? Yes. Is because like, there's so much stuff that's out there that you can access like from anywhere. Yeah. Um, but because there's so much stuff that it's, there's sort of like too much information to sift through well, to like find uh, obscure eight, indie films. Yeah. You know? 824 feels like one of the only like publishing houses that has like any sort of like, Oh, that feels like an a 24 movie. You yes, know, it they, feels like yeah, you can sort of put them on a shelf with one. Another. There is a, there is a brand identity to the films that mm-hmm. they distribute. Um, no, I mean, our, our buddy Marty Scorsese literally wrote an article about this. He like wrote a, he wrote a whole like piece about uh, Federico Fellini, but he sort of used mm-hmm. the first half of the article to sort of rage against the, against the content machine and sort of how like mm-hmm. the, how like the algorithm is like it's not a it's not a replacement for like yeah like curatorial like actual human beings and like it's you know like some people like might make the argument like oh the algorithm like doesn't have bias right it's like it's only it's like, only bias bitch have you ever no, written no, no, an algorithm no 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 like <laughs> sure sure and I'm, and I'm, no, and I'm not in favor of course I'm not I'm anti-algorithm but I'm just saying like mm-hmm. the problem isn't like curators are bad the problem is you need better curators right or you need like curators right. who are more open to like again because like yes. obviously like much of film culture is based on like elderly white male curators and it's like right you you have like you have like ashley clark who's now like the first ever like curator like at criterion and like he's Mm -hmm. like doing brilliant work over there like fucking criterion is streaming solange knowles's like 45 minute film cool like they are doing Mm -hmm. the shit like but like the algorithm isn't going like if you're spending your day watching great british bake-off and like the queen's gambit is the algorithm going to send you to like Solange Knowles's like feature? I don't think so. Right. It's like, I mean, if we're speaking about like YouTube algorithms, they're just going to like get you to watch white supremacy videos and like try to get me to rent the same, like two bad movies. I don't want to see. Um, Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's part of the, like part of what, what is the space for like, low budget independent filmmaking right now yeah. because like we don't have the like drive-in movie double feature where they want need a cheap second movie to throw in there right which is where b movie comes from as a term yeah and like uh, it's, just, it's like the b-side track mm-hmm. of a double feature and like thinking about like where where i don't know i was talking to joe swanberg about this recently because he really looks up to because he really looks up to roger corman he like kind of thinks of him as like a model to work after because it's like oh if you make you know if every one out of every five movies you make is good or is successful then like either you have to have that movie be really big and really successful or you have to make 25 movies yeah and then five of them will be successful. Yeah. <laughs> and like part of how like but that's partially like 
you know, he was making movies early in the like sort of video on demand online yeah. sort of streaming. No, it was like, it was so like, it was like him, there weren't a lot of options. It was like him and Andrew Bajalski, like that whole like fucking quote unquote mumblecore movement where there was still, right. well, like obviously like, um, and like fucking, yeah, like Joe Swartberg's got like Netflix shows and like Andrew Bajalski um, has like Regina Hall starring like brilliant, uh, brilliant films. And he wrote the screenplay for Lady and the Tramp for Disney Plus. So <laughs> you can do it. You can do anything. Um, no. And like, listen, we can, we can talk all days about how our current economic forces are, are just making it impossible to even exist in a world where you can, yeah, like it's just influencing everything about like how people are able to afford equipment, who's able to afford equipment, who's able to afford distribution, who even has the rights uh, to this equipment and all this shit. I think the, the moral of the story is don't feed the plants. Don't feed them. <laughs> but, but do make a movie in like two and a half days. Yeah. Listen, fucking do not worry about your art being bad. You just make a, th if you don't make stuff, you're never going to become a better artist. Learn from the Absolutely. learn from the Roger Cormans of the world. Just make your shit. Huh. That's all. Yeah, we you can have say. a phone that has a camera in it. Yeah, Go make a fucking movie. I was about to say your phone camera is better than what they made the Little Shop of Horrors on. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like yeah, you probably. are, you are what you mean by better, but yeah, totally. <laughs> you are. Listen, yeah, Roger Corman made his scrappy movie in two and a half days. Ashman and Minkin made their scrappy little musical that ran off Broadway for five years. Like, make your thing, make it happen, don't feed the plants, fuck a capitalism. Uh, Sid Branca, <laughs> before we leave today, we of course, like the end of every episode of Movie the Musical, we ask our guests a very important question. So, Sid, if you could adapt a movie into a musical that has not already been adapted, what movie? would you choose? So as I was thinking about this, like my initial reactions were a bunch of things that felt like they didn't count because they were like things like, um, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which is like almost already a musical, yeah. just not a stage musical. And it's all sort of already the Phantom of the Opera and Faust. And I was like, okay, that doesn't count. That's no good. Um, and then I started thinking about like, what's a musical I love? Cat. Great. how does cats work thinking about like okay it's about like the sort of gradual like introduction of a bunch of different characters right the sort of declarative mode of like this is me this is my deal here are my absurd circumstances um and here is why i crave ego death and <laughs> so my answer to this question is uh i would like to see a stage musical adaptation of the holy mountain Wow. Uh, so Who so, writes the score for that, though? Um, so, so, um, so, Sid, you, 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 we, you, we, before we dig deeper into who the hell is writing that, could you could you give a brief uh, sort of overview of The Holy Mountain for our listeners? Yeah, so The Holy Mountain um, is a, a surrealist film from the 1970s um, by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Um, and it uh <laughs> <laughs> a lot of triangles um you gotta you gotta um so it's it's very like kind of production design oriented um and the director um i believe is also the sort of scenic designer and costume designer and so there's a lot of like really 
strong kind of visual iconography involved. And it's essentially about um, an alchemist and a small group of people who accompany him on a sort of journey, like a knowledge seeking journey uh, through to like sort of gain wisdom through ritual and um, and sort of self-effacement. Um, but they, they, these are like a different, uh, all of the different people on this journey kind of get their own little introduction and they're all represented by a different planet. Um, right. And, uh, and like it's sort of describing how they represent the worst thing about the features of that planet. Um, it, like the, I'm trying to think of one of the examples, like, and there are all these, there's sort of these very like allegorical symbolic theming figures. Like one of them like runs a toy factory right. and like, um, one of them is like, um, I think like the general of an army. Um, and but everything is like very highly stylized. And a lot of it is them kind of like giving these, um, declarative monologues about themselves similar to the structure of cats um and but in the end it's them kind of like going through these like um ritual like sort of abnegations of the self to try to like learn something more and then there's kind of a moment at the end that feels like a breaking of the the fourth wall of the film similar to the end of cat um so yeah i think I think it would be interesting. It, it, so, There's also a moment where shit gets turned into gold. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty so early on. The, the, I feel like, the, so the Holy Mountain, I feel like has actually come up recently just in film discourse. Uh, I know it's, there's this like big Jodorowsky, uh, like, I don't know if there was like remasters of some of his movies. I think there's like some like a Blu-ray collection coming out of a lot of his work. Oh, cool. Including this film. Mm. I know it's it's on movie right now. Okay. Um, so mm. you can, for those who uh, want to watch it, you can subscribe to Mubi, which is a great, we're not, f- no, 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 yeah, no, pay us. yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Mubi, you gotta, you gotta uh, sponsor us and then we will plug you a great streaming <laughs> service. Um, but either way, yes, but it is streaming on there. Uh, but yeah, that's oh, great. Great answer, Sid. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And it's also maybe worth noting that the Beatles were like loosely affiliated this. with yeah. this film. Like, um, I think, John Lennon and Yoko Ono had like some financial investment yeah. in the film. And, and at the and very least, Yoko Ono, I think, like threw a lot of money into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think and they then... all had the same uh, peyote dealer. Is probably where that <laughs> came from. Seems about right. <laughs> yeah, like I think at one point, um, like George Harrison was like maybe gonna be involved in the film, right? Um, but then. Uh, I think some of it was like too out there for that to happen. I like, but, I li- you know, it's because obviously like a lot of people have a lot of very complicated feelings about cats, but I like that you took the structure. You're like, okay, I appreciate cats. I'm talking as you said, Branka, like I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate cats. And so what is sort of like the structural facet of cats that, that yeah, I, I love I love that thought process of extrapolating from there and coming to the holy mountain uh, in more ways than one. Uh, that is marvelous. Um, Thank you. Gosh, well uh, yeah. So yeah, so back to Brand's question: Who would compose? I mean, we haven't delved this deep into other ones, but yeah, who would compose this nonsense? That's a really great question. Um... Yeah, because there's like, 
the music in the film is kind of like I feel like there's like brass instruments involved in a lot of the music in the film and a lot of kind of like trippy sounding stuff. Um, but who who would compose? I don't know. I feel like y'all yeah. probably have more knowledge of who would be a good fit than I, I do. Know. I was thinking like Tom Waits is the first person that came I was, to mind. That'd be pretty wacky. I was, I was thinking like Johnny Greenwood. Oh, yeah. Ooh, um, there was that, that God, fun. what's that? John, he, there was that like uh, band that Johnny Greenwood like collaborated with uh, that Peter, Paul Thomas Anderson came up. I was just listening to, uh, we, uh, for those who are listening, uh, the Little Night Music episode just dropped and Paul Thomas Anderson came up in that episode too. He made this documentary, uh, Junun. Uh, which is a band, it's a music group made up of uh, Johnny Greenwood, um, an Israeli composer, Shai Bensur, um, and the uh, Indian ensemble, the Rajasthan Express. Um, and they have a beautiful sound um, that maybe would uh, match this subject huh. matter really well. Uh, that is Junun, uh, J-U-N-U-N. Their album slaps it's a great cool. fucking album um i'll definitely check it out because i did finally watch phantom thread pretty recently and oh, the music in that is so gorgeous mushrooms mushrooms <laughs> so good love mushroom soup uh <laughs> sid <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for this wild adventure um and people should follow you on on twitter and uh letterboxd um all the... i have been fairly active on letterboxd recently uh and i'm still kind of on and off twitter um but i think i am returning more soon uh and i'm just sid bronca on both of those platforms Hell yeah. you want to find me on the internet that's why we yelling live. about cats <laughs> um we'll we'll one day we will uh do a uh, cat i've i've we've actually made it a patreon goal uh that once we reach 100 uh patrons we will do a commentary of cats and and of course sid you are you are more than welcome to be part of that commentary um because yes. i know you have thoughts and i know you have feelings and i think they're very similar to ours as well <laughs> i look forward to when that day comes uh which is why you gotta subscribe to our patreon Go to Patreon. Yeah, go to patreon.com slash movie the musical and consider becoming a monthly member. I'm reading our outro out of order, but I had to plug the Patreon early because it <laughs> tied into what we were doing. Um, so back in order, I want to thank Brand Moorhead, as always, for producing and editing this show. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this first season of Movie the Musical, whatever that might mean to you. Um I want to thank Emily Harrington for our artwork. I want to thank M. Modaf for our, and Josh Stanley for our kickoff theme song. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, review us, subscribe for future episodes. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Movie the Musical. Stick around. We got another season coming again. This, this won't mean anything to you. Just wait a week and we'll just keep pumping out episodes, but we're going to take a nice few week break while we figure out what the hell uh what other what other movie to stage uh adaptations we will i'm gonna take peyote and watch the holy mountain (laughs) (laughs) listen dick have a have a great day keep on singing and please for the love of god don't feed the plants (laughs) 